0: Hello, everyone. Good evening. Come on in. There's still some seats in the front. If people do want to sit up here, the wings here are totally open. Uh, so you're welcome to come on up front. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, my name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia. Uh, recently transitioned from outpatient medicine to inpatient medicine, um, and I think one of the insights that we get is that Throughout the Medical Center, there are opportunities to connect with patients and to heal patients, and uh, it's been a wonderful learning opportunity for me to be back in the inpatient setting, working with patients that that are really in need. Uh, My other role at the Medical Center is I I run Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials. That's the course of the medical school where the students learn how to interview a patient at the bedside and do a physical exam. A real transformative uh, moment in the training of medical students And I was just talking to one of our first-year medical students who's in the course, and we were remarking on how, historically, oftentimes, our training of medicine separates engagement with the body from engagement with a person's personhood or a person's interiority. And I think there are, and we can see this reflected throughout the way we construct our societies, in the way institutions are organized, in the way that uh, medical care is reimbursed, in the way that we teach our courses, in the way that we approach patients. And I think our work is increasingly to recognize opportunities to integrate, not only in terms of curriculum, but in terms of thinking about what it means to be human. We are at the same time emotional beings, spiritual beings, uh, beings with stories, but also physical beings. And so how can we hold all those things together? So I want to thank the students for engaging me in that conversation today. My other role at the, at the medical school and center is to, uh, to be the director of clinical practice for the program in narrative medicine. Really thinking about how can we take the methods of narrative medicine and implement them in clinical practice. I feel like we're really at the verge of some discoveries and some innovations, and many people in this room are, are engaged with us in that. A couple of announcements looking ahead for the rest of the semester. Uh, on April 5th, Richard Zainer, professor of ethics and philosophy of medicine, from Vanderbilt, will be with us to explore the telling of stories, Um, so that's Narrative Medicine Rounds uh, next, next month. On May 3rd, Harriet Washington and Randy Cohen will be with us. Washington is a journalist and editor and has written about the intersections of race, research and medical practice, I think that will be really engaging. And I also want to invite you all to think about joining us for a basic narrative medicine workshop. These are workshops that we have a couple times during the year. Um, every couple of years we have an advanced workshop as well, but on April 7th and 9th, we still have spots open for a basic narrative medicine workshop. But this workshop has a special uh, perspective and angle that is really a response to uh, what's happening in our country today. So the, the, the title of this narrative medicine workshop is Race, Violence, and Justice, the Need for Narrative It's going to be a deeper dive into our narrative medicine methods and what we're up to. But using our methods of reflective writing, of reading closely, of having conversations, uh, using those methods to, in particular, explore those issues that are so pertinent to us today. Um, Our guest speakers will include Mindy Foley-Love and George Yancey and Sayantani Dasgupta, one of our faculty members in narrative medicine. Uh, will be really gathered as a community to not to tell you the answers or tell you how we should be doing this but really as an opportunity to use the methods of storytelling, of listening closely to one another to help open up conversations so I'd like to now to uh, invite Nellie Herman up to introduce our, our speaker tonight, Nellie's the corrective, uh, creative director of the program in narrative medicine, she's a novelist um, and she's really one of the architects of this program who's been involved for Many years <laughs> and a good friend.
1: No. Thank you, Deepu. Hi, everybody. Um, somewhere around the year 2008, I think, um, soon after I, I had officially started working in the narrative medicine program, I got an email from Rachel Aviv, whom I did not yet know. At the time, um, the writing workshops for the narrative medicine selectives that the medical students do were taught by students in the Columbia MFA program. This is how I first learned about the narrative medicine program and became involved. (coughs) Rachel, who was then studying nonfiction at Columbia, wrote me that she had taught one of the narrative medicine workshops and was very interested in doing more with the program. It says a lot about her that I still, to this day, nine years later, remember that email. She proposed two full courses that she would be interested in teaching, complete with thoroughly worked out and terribly interesting syllabi. And though we had no place at the time for more courses, I asked her to meet me for a chat. I could see even in that one email the fierce intelligence of this woman, the seriousness and the ambition. So after our first meeting, Rachel and I continued to keep in touch For a number of years she continued to teach with the program, first the medical school courses and then for two years she also taught a narrative medicine course at Sophie Davis City College Medical School. Um, She also taught some workshops at Mount Sinai and all the while of course she was writing and publishing freelance pieces um, and sort of progressing in her own writing career so she published a few pieces in Harper's Magazine in 2009 and 2010, and then she won a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writer's Award and moved to devote herself full-time to her writing. Not too long after that, she began publishing pieces in The New Yorker and became an official staff writer for them in 2013. Since then, she has twice been a finalist for the Livingston Award for Journalists under the age of 35 in 2013 and 2016, and she won the 2016 Scripps Howard Award for a piece called Your Son is Deceased, which is an incredible story about police shootings in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It has been such a supreme and really unique pleasure. I, don't, it, I can't really think of a, another example where I've been able to watch someone's career really start and blossom and then bloom um, these last number of years. And it's particularly exciting to get to bring her now here to talk to us um, in this forum. I really have the feeling with Rachel that we are witnessing the growth and development of a writer that will become one of our most important voices in the world of letters, and particularly in the, for- in the field of, of writing about social justice. I'm also, I'm always, ex- that sounds like my dog. <laughs> Is my dog here? Um, <laughs> I'm always excited to see her name on the byline of a New Yorker issue. It is a dog? I think. No, no maybe not. Um, because I know that no matter what she's writing about, it will be an important story and it will be well told. Um, her subjects are really diverse, but they very often have at their core a person or persons who have been mistreated or misunderstood. People. Who are caught in the vice of societal forces and are unable to change their circumstances? I really wanted to give uh, give you guys who may not be as familiar with her work a a nice sampling of her pieces, but I had such a hard time because they're really like all of them are so interesting and they're also so diverse. But I'll 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 just throw out a few. Uh, Most recently, she wrote about Albert Woodfox, a member of the Black Panther Party who was recently released from prison in Louisiana, was held in solitary confinement for more than 40 years. Before that, she wrote about a New York City nanny who left the Philippines to provide a better life for her children and hasn't seen them in 16 years. She wrote about a child soldier from Sierra Leone who was granted asylum in the U.S. and the immigration nightmare that he suffered after getting in some legal trouble about a man who is incorrectly sentenced to the death penalty in the Louisiana Parish where the death penalty is chillingly routine, <coughs> about a police killing in Albuquerque against the background of the outsized history of police shootings there. She's written about the fascinating new laws surrounding euthanasia in Belgium, about the homeless youth community in New York City, and more than <coughs> once about psychosis, as she will talk more with us about tonight. Um, I mean, this is really just scratching the surface of what she's written about. Her writing gives you the sense that storytelling matters in a very real-world, practical way. Each of her stories embodies something that we try to teach here in the Narrative Medicine program, that each person's story, no matter their circumstances, can tell us something about the world that we live in, that every person has a story and that every every story matters. I, I know that Ra- actually Rachel's storytelling has already affected change in the world, um, and, and I mean maybe we can talk about this in the comments after she talks, but I know at least one case where it's clear that her article actually really did make a significant difference um, in the direction of justice. So I pat myself on the back for recognizing Rachel's specialness in that first email that she sent to me, and I'm proud to now call her my friend. I admire her vision, her hard work, and the way that she channels her subjects so thoroughly in her pieces, all but disappearing into the work, though somehow still guiding the narrative with a firm hand. I think she has a lot to teach all of us, and we should all keep an eye on her career because I know it will continue to go in interesting directions.
2: Um, especially (laughs) because I feel like right now um, it just there's this question of what's the point of writing and who's reading and what does journalism do these days Um, Um, so I'm actually going to focus on two stories that are about psychosis um, and I thought I would just talk about well I'm going to read a little from these stories and also talk about why I even chose to write about psychosis in the first place Um, a lot of my story ideas come from reading literature. Sometimes I'll be reading novels or short stories and realize that there's a particular kind of experience that I, I don't know much about, and then I want to see what that looks like kind of in real life. Um, so that's how I started writing about psychosis. I read a memoir called The Center Cannot Hold by Ellen Sachs in 2007. And as I was reading it, I realized that I actually had never had any idea of what it meant to be psychotic. Like, I'd heard of that word. I knew there was something called, like, a psycho killer that's dangerous and kind of crazy. And, and I just didn't realize that it was, like, a very specific and concrete way of sort of um, seeing the world. Um, it was just this entire category of experience that I felt like wasn't described in the news and wasn't just really described in literature. Um, and after reading that memoir, I discovered the work of Louis Sass, who's a clinical psychologist at Rutgers. Um, he's written some incredible books about the subjective experience of schizophrenia, particularly the earliest stages when people have insight into what's happening and sort of are aware that their minds are not working in the way that they used to work. Um, In one of his books called Madness and Modernism, he describes how psychiatrists have tended to assume that people who are psychotic lie beyond the reach of empathy or understanding. He writes that even the most articulate schizophrenics are usually reduced to repeating the same horribly inadequate phrase, everything is strange, or everything is somewhat different. Something I, I struggle with is, is what, what is writing to do in the world? Or why am I asking these people to open up and tell me about their lives? like what What is the point of that? Um, when writing about psychosis, I felt like that purpose was more clear um, because they were articulating an experience that I think is fundamentally really hard to communicate. And because it's so hard to communicate, it's even more alienating. Um, so that gave me a sense of of almost a mission like to be able to describe this experience that seems to defy language in some way um so i'm going to just read a few excerpts from this piece i wrote uh, which was about the earliest stages of psychosis Um, it was called which way madness lies anna did not simply decide one day that people were made of paper She came to the conclusion slowly and reluctantly, several months after she first noticed that the consistency of everything around her had subtly changed. Books and chairs and buildings were no longer solid, but composed of tiny buzzing particles. She thought that if she blew on a lamppost, it should disperse into air. On her way to school every morning, she was perplexed by the implausibility of the process, that she could walk along the sidewalk, her boots pressed against the concrete without falling through. Anna had always been the kind of student who would do anything to please her teachers. And from a young age, she had single-mindedly pursued a career as a scholar. But by her first semester of graduate school three years ago, schoolwork had become daunting for the first time. She had studied Russian, German, and French, yet she found herself forgetting words she'd known for years. Even English no longer felt like a native language. She sometimes examined the appearance of words, the alignment of angles and curves on the page, until she lost sight of their meaning. Once with her friends, she became so overwhelmed by the task of physically forming the sounds of words that she lost the ability to speak. She knew what she wanted to say, but she couldn't will herself to make such odd little noises. I met Anna at her Illinois home, a small, brightly painted townhouse apartment and she tried to pinpoint when she had stopped believing in the realities she'd inhabited all her life. A petite 28-year-old with cleanly parted blonde hair, she spoke in a thin, strained voice and avoided looking at me. My lips, she said, appeared as if they were moving at a different pace than my voice, and she had to ignore the thought that she was watching a dubbed film. Anna's mother is schizophrenic, and Anna had always found her mother's worldview, derived in part from messages she deciphered in processed food packaging, distasteful and impossible to comprehend. She assumed that when her mother had a schizophrenic break, the delusions had taken her by force, engulfing her. But an alternate reality did not come to Anna fully formed. Throughout her first year of graduate school, she kept monitoring her own perceptions, wondering whether they didn't have some tinge of unreality. She searched for a narrative that would explain why the world was being transformed. One day, wandering the halls of an academic department, she became fascinated by the physical details of the building—tiny cracks in the wall, a light switch, a rubber doorstop that looked luminous and functionless. A bust of Plato which she had never noticed before, seemed to be calling out to her. As she gazed at Plato's mournful expression, she imagined that he had singled her out to unburden himself and shed light on what she described as the overwhelming strangeness of the world. But after she left campus and returned to her apartment that day, the electricity of her mood had passed and she was no longer interested in Plato's secrets. She blamed herself for attending too avidly to the stream of her own consciousness. It wasn't as if this bust suddenly started talking to me out of thin air, she told me. I wanted him to, and then I sort of convinced myself that he did. It didn't feel like I was being passively subjected to another reality. It felt like I somehow actively engaged in creating it. For Anna, early symptoms were nearly impossible to describe, and the only way to communicate them was by making up new phrases. She wrote in her journal that she was struggling with quote, migrating electrical sensations and the sense that words were alive. The first therapist Anna went to see didn't know what to make of her disparate symptoms and after a few sessions told Anna she didn't know how to help her. Anna left without a referral. Two months later, she became a patient at the psychosis clinic in Chicago after finding it online. She was still getting A's in school and there was no one symptom that bothered her most. It was only the sum total of these nameless experiences. Anna and I spoke several times over the past year, and she always approached her symptoms with critical distance. As an adolescent, she had told her mother that her fantastical stories were logically impossible. There was no global conspiracy, the phones weren't tapped, there was no need to put all their belongings on the sidewalk. Anna was terrified of becoming schizophrenic herself, but by the time she reached her early 20s, she was so socially and intellectually at ease that she assumed the window of risk had passed. She told me, I define myself in opposition to that backdrop of illogicality. Yet, yeah, in the course of a few months, she had become too suggestible. She would come up with sweeping theories about the structure of reality, that time no longer existed, that the world was made up entirely of gases, and then, moments later, scold herself for allowing the experience when there was not a shred of scientific evidence, as she said. She kept waiting for the particles to vanish on their own. When they didn't, she worried she was addicted to an idea. She felt that by wondering about the properties of matter, by blowing on books to see whether they would disintegrate, she had taken some irrevocable step toward illness. Anna's doctors urged her to take antipsychotic medication, but Anna did so only sporadically, rarely at a therapeutic dose, primarily because the drugs made her feel too tired and mentally cloudy. During her weekly sessions, the psychiatrist at the clinic would check up on her with a stream of standard queries. Do you think your thoughts are not your own? Do you ever hear voices? For months, Anna said no, but she became increasingly uncertain. The boundary between fantasy and lived reality had become too porous. When she focused closely enough on her thoughts, she could make herself hear a soft voice behind them. More and more, her thoughts began to feel like things, she said. They had their own location and sentience. She could feel them circling around her brain." Um, I'm just gonna skip ahead a little now. Um, 30 years ago, people with psychotic symptoms might have explained their problems by talking about the mixed messages they received at home. It's the way I was raised, or it's because my mother always rejected me. But these explanations have been replaced by a new narrative. When I asked patients at the psychosis risk programs about the cause of their symptoms, many responded by referring to neurobiological processes. The hippocampus is firing too much and telling me to be afraid, or it's the adrenaline, the epinephrine, and the norepinephrine. And the amygdala can either heighten the anxiety or diminish it, depending on which direction I take with my thoughts. Anna, too, found herself scrutinizing the debris of the agency she had over the inner workings of her brain. She enrolled in a neurobiology elective in school and tried to determine which pathological neural process was making her thoughts take on their own timbre. It's the whole efference copy system, she told me. I'm double hearing, I think, and my thoughts are coming back to me as external. But the knowledge did little to ease the phenomenon, and sometimes in the midst of writing a paper, she would become alarmed that she had ever imagined she could come up with an idea and wonder whether her thoughts were outside of her brain, floating. The more I focus on my thoughts, the more it feels like they don't actually belong to me, she said. It physically feels like my head is just completely hollow. For Anna, there was no single moment of conversion, no sudden break from one state of mind to the next. If there is a boundary between health and insanity, Anna felt herself creeping across it with pain, self-awareness. She remembered as a teenager feeling dismayed by her mother's inability to communicate. Her thoughts no longer conformed to the... Laws that literally allow us to make sense, as she put it. Now Anna worried that she too had somehow been unmoored from the rhythms of everyday life. Occasionally she would read dense academic texts, but other times she couldn't follow more than a few lines. She stopped going to class. Time no longer felt as if it passed. Each moment had become disconnected from the next. She would lie in bed for hours with the lights off, watching the play of shadows on a wall that she wasn't sure existed. An elegant writer, Anna was often dismayed to look back at earlier pages of her journal and see notes about futuristic mind experiments involving implanted memories and telepathy or the physics of a new sphere of reality. In college, she had romanticized madness, but this was insanity as a cliche. It offered no revelation. Knowing that these thoughts were just symptoms, a word that struck her as overburdened with consonants, didn't diminish their force. She struggled to create some theory that it would explain why people seemed so phony and lifeless and small, as if they could be manipulated in her fingers. She considered many possibilities. They were marionettes, robots, drawings, automatons, agents of an omniscient godhead. Eventually, she settled on paper figurines. It was never a conclusion with which she was content, just the one that seemed to border unreasonable. She would walk down the streets talking to herself and didn't care that people were staring at her because they were only made of paper. A year after beginning treatment, she was briefly hospitalized after she came to the clinic incapable of uttering a word. She assumed that the hospital billed her insurance for treating schizophrenia, but she has never seen her formal diagnosis. <coughs> schizophrenia is a term that her therapist, Dr. Rosen, tends to avoid since it implies a bleakly fixed outcome, which is not often the, which is often not the case. Anna went back and forth between feeling as if there was something inevitable about the cascade of symptoms, and wondering whether the illness might not have progressed if she had gotten help earlier when the only trouble was a low yet constant hum of anxiety, a state of mind that for most of us is normal. But her current condition now shades everything that came before. Since psychiatric diagnoses are based almost entirely on the patient's self-report, and Anna always felt that her descriptions were inadequate and distorting, she was left with the feeling that she'd somehow constructed the illness herself. By naming these experiences, she worried she had brought them into being. Anna said that she would have been a lost soul had she not found Dr. Rosen, who was the only person with whom she could openly share these experiences. But at times, she struggled to maintain belief in the reality of her appointments. Dr. Rosen will try to convince me through Socratic reasoning that the appointment is actually happening, Anna told me. She'll say, Anna, you're sitting on a chair. Why aren't you falling through the chair? And I'll have to admit, yes, I am sitting on a chair, and I know the chair is solid because I'm sitting on it. She'll say, well, are you talking to me right now? And I'll say, yes, I'm talking to you right now. But the thing is, it goes nowhere. She can reason with me like that, and it doesn't in any way change my mind. I'm perfectly aware that I can navigate space and move in time, and at the same time, none of it feels like it hap- it's happening. It just doesn't make a difference. It wasn't as if she had surrendered to the world of particles. She found it dismaying and unbelievable, and yet she couldn't dismiss it as false. She said... There is a sense in which the law of contradiction, that something can not be X and not, that something can be X and not X at the same time, has ceased to matter, she said. What I know and what I believe no longer coincide, and I can't make them. Um, so I'm gonna stop from that article now, but a few days after this article was published, um, I received what, to me, was one of the most moving emails I've ever gotten. Um, The person who wrote me also had schizophrenia, and like Anna, he had studied philosophy. One of the things Anna had talked a lot to me about was that she wondered if there was anyone in the world who was both studied philosophy and had schizophrenia because she felt like they would have so much uh, to talk about, so I immediately put them in touch. Uh, And it turned out they lived a couple blocks away and they began meeting for conversations. Um, But I'm just gonna read to you from the email he wrote to me in response to the story, which I found really incredible. He wrote, I graduated from Oxford University with a Bachelor in Philosophy and then went to Montreal to pursue a PhD. Towards the end of my time there, I developed a florid psychosis that led ultimately to my being arrested, jailed, institutionalized, and then kicked out of the country. I ended up homeless in Chicago, completely insane, and not quite sure why any of this was happening to me, but also 100% convinced that everything I was doing and everything I believed was logically valid. I was like a scientist from another planet, trying to learn the most basic things about being a human being. So I didn't really mind being homeless all that much and being pretty much a genius, I was happy to walk around thinking about life all the time. (laughs) The part of your article at the end where the woman tells you how impossible it is to communicate the quality of the experience of psychosis is exactly how I have felt for several years now. I feel like I went through a profoundly traumatizing experience but that I can't explain to anyone what happened and I can't believe that none of it actually happened. For example, my delusions all involved aliens. I believe for years that aliens were reading my thoughts. I logically tested this hypothesis many times and always found it to be confirmed in the deepest and weirdest ways. It is strange and impossible to communicate to another person what exactly happened, but it is equally strange to remind myself that none of it happened. Sometimes I cry when I think of how alone I am in all of this. Yet I know that the same sort of thing has happened to millions of people, and many hundreds of thousands of people are experiencing it right now. If I could add anything to your article, it would be this. I actually feel guilty because in many ways I enjoyed my psychotic state. There is nothing quite like the feeling that you and you alone are aware of something so weird as aliens reading people's thoughts. It made my life an adventure, and I developed many elaborate theories about why the aliens were interested in my thoughts in particular, It made sense that they would be interested in my thoughts because I was on the cutting edge of research and logic. I've had a hard time adjusting to life after psychosis, which I guess everyone does. I might very well end up homeless again someday. When I was deep into a delusional worldview, my life had significance and intensity like it will never have any other time. The most mundane tasks were loaded with meaning. Honestly, I would rather walk around talking to aliens sometimes. That scares me. In short, I think many victims of psychosis struggle with the feeling that they are complicit in their delusions, by which I mean that in my own case, I wanted all of these delusional beliefs to be true, and I wanted to play the role I was playing, even though now I can see how I was totally self-destructive. I feel like a gang rape victim that really did dance suggestively in front of a group of leering men in a bar or something. Like I sort of wanted something to happen, but I most certainly did not want what I got. Anyway, the way I got out of it all was that I got hooked up with an organization through Northwestern University in Chicago that gives Risperdal to homeless people. I took antipsychotics for a few months and then slowly started to admit to myself that even if aliens are reading my thoughts, there's no reason why I have to be homeless necessarily. So now I have a job and an apartment. I still have fairly florid delusions, but like many of the people in your article, I've learned to recognize my delusions as delusions so I don't have to take action based upon my beliefs. I try to always do what people are, are doing. What other I try to always do what other people are doing. Work, eat, pay rent, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I feel pretty certain that if the aliens are reading my thoughts, it's because they want to see what an ordinary person thinks. So I try to be ordinary. Um so one of the things I thought about a lot as I wrote that other piece about the earliest stages of psychosis is this question of how much knowledge we can or should have about the contents of our own minds. Um, I've always been struck by research, which shows that people who are depressed are actually more realistic than people who aren't. Um, They're aware of their own flaws and their inadequacies and the fact that they are going to die and that we're all going to die. and um, These are the truths that other people tend to pass over. And so this idea that to be healthy or normal is to sort of view oneself in wishful and unrealistic ways, to think that you're a little bit better than you are. Um, In this email from this guy, I I was really struck by the point he raised about how it is sometimes preferable to be psychotic than to just live in a mundane, ordinary world. Um, It resonated with me in part because I felt this tension with Anna. Um, I had noticed that when she was taking antipsychotic drugs, to me, she seemed a little bit more together. Um, But she described being medicated against her will as one of the most traumatic experiences of her life. So I felt like I was almost betraying her by having this thought of, well, maybe, maybe you actually should take medication. Um, so in, in the following months, after writing the story and getting to know Anna, I started to think a lot about that particular dilemma, like how do you decide when to trust a patient that she knows her own mind and she shouldn't have to take medication. Um, one, the legal and the medical fields have very different visions of what it means uh, to protect a patient's free will. According to the psychiatrist and legal scholar Thomas Gutiel, the physician seeks to liberate the patient from the chains of illness, the judge from the chains of treatment. The way is paved for patients to rot with their rights on. Um, I decided I wanted to write a story about this sort of broad abstract issue, but I felt like in order to do that, I need to find the right their personal narrative. Um, and when I'm picking a story, I often look for an intersection between a, a broader narrative about a set of issues or questions that I have and a very specific narrative, which is this person who can kind of guide a reader through these questions. Um, that person becomes a kind of through line to which the reader can attach. Um, so for me, picking this guide or, or this character is is the... Maybe the most important part of writing the story. To me, it seems like it's the difference between writing a story that people are going to read and writing a story that people just won't care about. Um, Especially because I think the people that I write about are not really natural heroes. They're people who are sort of marginalized or stigmatized and not usually put in the position of a protagonist. Um, And I like the idea that because of that, readers are forced to identify with people that they wouldn't normally identify with. So to look at these issues, I discovered, I I sort of read a lot about the broader issue, and I discovered that there was a psychiatrist named E. Fuller Torrey, who's the founder of a treatment advocacy center in Virginia, which is this sort of controversial organization that I don't necessarily uh, share views with, but but what was interesting to me was that he had this huge database of all the cases that he described as uh, preventable tragedies. These were instances where someone had hurt him or herself or someone else um, because of an untreated mental illness. And so he was sort of making an argument with this database. But ignoring his argument, I found it an interesting collection of stories and started reading through all the stories and read about a woman in uh, New Hampshire named Linda Bishop. who had been released from the New Hampshire State Hospital with no follow-up plan. None of her family members were informed that she had been discharged. And she ended up in an abandoned farmhouse. subsisting only on apples. Uh, what struck me was that she had chronicled her own, her life and her time in that farmhouse in these two long journals. And whenever I see that someone has written a journal, that always makes me want to write about them because it's this way of getting a very, very intimate first person perspective of someone's life as they go through it in that moment rather than you know, retrospectively describing it. Um, Linda was a patient who lived in what is often called the institutional circuit. She moved in and out of jails, halfway homes, homeless shelters, emergency rooms, and psychiatric hospitals. Um, And as I read, I ended up reading her medical records and her journals and her case notes from her social workers. And it seemed to me that the validity of her diagnosis was the subtext of nearly all her encounters with uh, medical professionals. They kept trying to teach her that parts of her personality could be uh, construed as a mental illness, as she put it. Um, And that only alienated her. In a letter to a friend, she wrote that she was using her hospital stay as an opportunity to quote, prove that I don't have a mental illness and never did. Um, When she was hospitalized, which happened many times, Linda was educated about her illness and the need for medication. This is the standard approach for increasing insight, but does not account for the fact that people's beliefs, even those which are wildly false, shape their identities a person goes from being a political martyr to a mental patient in just a few days, the sign of a successful hospital stay by most standards, her life may begin to feel banal and useless. Um, during Linda's treatment, the word insight came, seemed to take on an almost magical resonance. The psychiatrist Aubrey Lewis defined insight in 1934 as uh, the correct attitude to a morbid change in oneself. Uh, but that concept seems slippery to me because it's a phenomenon that is essentially social, because it speaks to the extent to which a patient agrees with his or her doctor's interpretation of what's wrong with her. Um, As I wrote the piece, I was struck by the way that this language barrier interfered with Linda's recovery. Her doctors kept wanting her to reach an awareness of herself as manic and bipolar and mentally ill, and they kept using those words, and she rejected them. Instead, she described herself as pissed off and energetic and unhappy about her living situation. As soon as those clinical terms got introduced, she would just shut down and refuse to participate in the treatment. Um, so I'm just going to read the opening section and a few other sections from this particular piece, um, and then hopefully we can talk Nelly. <laughs> Um, Okay. So, two days after being released from New Hampshire Hospital in Concord, Linda Bishop discarded all her belongings except for mascara, tweezers, and a pen. For nearly a year, she complained about the restrictions of, her, of the psychiatric unit, but her only plan for her release was to remain invisible. She spent two nights in a field she called Hoboville, where homeless people slept, and then began wandering around Concord, avoiding the main streets. Wary of spies, she cut through the underbrush behind buildings, walked through gullies beside the roads, and when she needed to rest, huddled in the bushes. Her life was saved along the way, she later wrote, by two warblers and an owl. A tall, athletic 51-year-old with blue eyes and a bachelor's degree in art history from the University of New Hampshire, Linda had been admitted to the hospital in late October 2006 after having been found incompetent to stand trial for a series of offenses. She spent most of her 11 months there reading, writing, crocheting. She refused all psychiatric medication because she believed her bipolar diagnosis was a mistake. Each time she met a new psychiatrist, she declared her lack of respect for the profession. Only when conversations moved away from her mental illness, a term she generally placed in quotation marks, was she cheerful and engaged. Her medical records consistently note the same traits. Extremely bright, very pleasant, denies completely that she has an illness. In the weeks leading up to her discharge, her doctors urged her to make appointments for housing and follow-up care, but Linda refused, saying, God will provide. During a rainstorm on her fourth day out of the hospital, Linda broke into a vacant farmhouse for sale on Mountain Road, a scenic residential street. The three-story home overlooked a brook and ample orchard, and a few rooms were still sparsely furnished. Linda intended to stay only a few nights, but she began to worry that her dirty clothes would attract attention if she walked back to town. She wrote in a black, this quote, I look terrible like a vagrant, she wrote in a black leather pocket notebook that the previous tenants had left behind. Linda had led a nomadic existence ever since she had abandoned her sleeping 13-year-old daughter in 1999, leaving a note saying that she was going to meet the governor. She drifted between homeless shelters, hospitals, and jail. She wrote in the journal that she wasn't ready to quote make my presence known and just start the make my presence known and just start the whole mess again to prove what that I'm all right have that done that too many times. 2 days after breaking into the house she decided to make the place her temporary home. She would subsist on apples while awaiting further instructions from God. Linda settled into a routine. In the morning when the sun poured through the living room window warming the end of the couch She read college textbooks that she found in the attic. The former tenant appeared to have dropped out of school in 1969, quote, but his creative writing is very good, she noted, and she began embarking on the education he had abandoned. She began with Joseph Conrad and moved on to biology and great issues in Western civilization. When she had enough energy, she did her chores, as she called them. She combed her grain brown hair, first with a small rake, and when that proved too cumbersome, with a fork, and tidied the house in case potential buyers came for a viewing. There was no electricity or water, but after dusk, she rinsed her underwear in the brook, collected water with a vase, and picked apples. After the first week, she estimated that she had lost 10 pounds. When she looked in the mirror, she was startled by how drawn her face had become. Yet after enduring so many irritations in her hospital unit, patients who wouldn't stop talking, or who touched her, or sat in her favorite chair, or noise in the middle of the night, she didn't mind having time alone. From her window, she enjoyed watching purple finches, tufted titmice, and chickadees. She wished she had binoculars. A neighbor came over to mow the lawn and pull the weeds. He has no idea I'm here, Linda wrote as she watched from an upstairs window. The threat that Linda was hiding from was from a sh- the threat that Linda was hiding from was a shifty one. She alluded to conspiracies involving her older sister, the government, and Satan's workers, but she also wondered if anyone was even looking for her. She kept retracing the series of events that led her to this house. She knew it didn't quote make sense to be barely existing she got lightheaded just walking up the stairs but she felt that the situation must have been willed by the lord by the end of october she had a stash of 300 apples she worried about the coming winter she watched trees lose their leaves milkweed seeds blow in the wind like it's snowing she wrote and geese migrate south still she could find quote no signs or clues that i should be doing anything different Um, Okay, now I'm just going to skip ahead, um, forward in the article, but back, this is going back to the time that she was in the hospital. Linda readily acknowledged that her life had gone awry, but she insisted that her diminished circumstances had nothing to do with being, quote, crazy. After reading a booklet on domestic violence, she concluded that her sister was trying to abuse her by convincing others that she was ill and stealing her inheritance. This will make a great book, and NY Times bestseller, she wrote to a friend from the hospital. Three months into Linda's stay, the hospital filed a petition to make her sister Joan her legal guardian, with the authority to force her to take medication. The hospital had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Linda was incapable of making her own decisions. At the hearing, Linda told the judge that her only problem was that she was permanently pissed off. I have a huge amount of medical knowledge, she said. She pointed out that she took daily vitamins, wore anti-embolism stockings, had recently agreed to a mammogram, passed a first aid course when she was 16, and had an uncle who was a podiatrist. To the charge that she was manic, she said, I've always been like this, okay? I'm a waitress, I have a lot of energy. The judge found that the evidence of Linda's incapacity, her refusal to accept why she was a patient, did not need the burden of proof. Linda had become a person that both her sister and her daughter hardly recognized, but the court could not deprive an individual of her legal rights just because her personality has changed. She wasn't screaming, she wasn't talking to the ceiling, Joan said. After the guardianship hearing, which Linda's psychiatrist viewed as their one chance to medicate her, They began talking about her release, though hospital staff continued to express concern about Linda's belief in the plot. The psychiatrist who gave a second opinion on her discharge predicted that Linda would probably get into further altercations with the police and end up back in the hospital. Then there would be more evidence to apply again for a legal guardian. Her pattern, he wrote, is to attract attention to the police before situations become severely dangerous. He seemed to feel that only law enforcement officials had the power to lead her to treatment. Linda had spent time away from the hospital on her daily community passes. She usually sat in a square in Concord, crocheting and people watching, but she always returned before dinner was served. She was an active participant in support groups, but she avoided meetings that had a therapy component. According to worksheets she filled out at one group, freedom was her only long term goal. Her short term goals included get clothes, depart from evil, put pressure on the guilty, and laugh more. A hospital assistant developed a friendship with Linda and encouraged her to think seriously about what she would do after her discharge. Linda cut off their conversations. I remember her walking down the hall, and she turned around, and she said, you're putting your values on my life, the assistant later explained. That was my moment. That was like, I have to back off. Linda's only plan for supporting herself was to sell some mittens and doilies she'd crocheted. Although she had complained of the indignity of being homeless, she didn't authorize the hospital to share her records with the Free Transitional Housing Service, because when she reviewed the paperwork, she saw her diagnosis. I refuse to sign anything that says I am mentally ill, she told her social worker. Instead, she left the hospital with only pocket change, no access to a bank account, and not a single person aware of where she was going. When Linda arrived at the house on Mountain Road, her mood oscillated between despair and exhilaration at her sudden freedom. For the first time in years, she saw the potential to start her life anew on her own terms. She finally had her own home, a plot of land, and no one telling her what to do. During her illness, the person with whom Linda felt closest was a man named Steve, whom she considered the love of her life. Steve met Linda a few times in 1998. She was a nice lady who seemed lonely, Lonely, he told me. But beyond calling the jail in 2005 and asking it to block Linda's letters, he'd had no contact since. While in jail, Linda told Caitlin, her daughter, to design bridesmaid dresses for her and her friends because she and Steve were getting married. He wants a big church wedding, she wrote, which is fine with me. Linda had spoken of Steve in rapturous tones, at the beginning of her illness, but she was self-conscious enough then to recognize her fantasy. She even wrote a letter to a friend explaining that the process I am going through is not about a relationship with Steve, it is about a relationship with myself. But by the time Linda got to New Hampshire Hospital, she considered herself Steve's wife. Now, at the house on Mountain Road, she imagined their domestic routine. They would eat homemade dinners and watch the sunset holding hands, and search the attic for clothes so she would look attractive if Steve arrived. All she could find was a hat. A plan took shape. Steve would rescue her sometime near Advent, the beginning of the new liturgical year. After gazing at the sky and seeing a cluster of clouds forming the number four, Linda determined that he'd arrive by December 4th. Using long division and multiplication tables that fill the margin of the last page of her notebook, she calculated that she could survive the, quote, attic and apples chapter of this book if she limited herself to 12 apples per day. Having spent two years in institutional settings, with precisely timed meals and activities, Linda had gotten to the habit of checking her watch and she began many of her diary entries with up to four a day by noting the time. The high point of each day, she said, was the moment when she crossed off another date on her makeshift calendar, which she usually did around four o'clock. She discovered new books in the attic and under a couch, what the Bible is all about, medical self-help training, Webster's New World Dictionary, Can can America survive? But the days dragged. It was difficult to do anything but think about food. What the Bible is all about was a source of inspiration, and she transcribed a number of verses about the glory of following God's path. The longer Linda was off her medication, the more everyday occurrences seemed to be laced with hidden connections and symbols. Faith in the Lord's plan for her became essential as the door- days shortened and the temperature dropped. Her neck ached because she spent about 16 hours a day curled up under blankets on a mattress in order to stay warm. So much hair fell out each time she combed it that she realized she might need a temporary wig. But she wrote that it was nothing a little fresh air, sunshine, exercise, good food and love won't remedy in a short period of time. Linda looked out for Steve's white Chevy truck, but by the beginning of December, her conviction began to waver. So maybe the fact that I haven't seen him is a good sign, she wrote. I just hope God does want us to be together. Everything seems to assure that, but who knows how it all fits. Certainly my death at this point does not seem beneficial to God's plans as perceived by me. On December 4th, the sight of Christmas lights and a house drawn down the road made her break into tears. She and Caitlin had always enjoyed decorating their tree to excess, but she hadn't seen a lit up house in two years. By afternoon, Steve still hadn't arrived. Linda was so desperate that she contemplated walking to a neighbor's house and calling a domestic violence center. But she worried that Satan's workers could be waiting for her. Dear God, she wrote, please save me. I'm trying, but I don't know what to do. Amen." The next day, she ate the last of her apples. You've got stop there. And, um, and, we can, and we can just talk more generally about the process of writing, and... What happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happens is, well, it's like, if I tell you what happens in my own word, it's too depressing. But, but she does die in there, but she chronicles the entire experience in her journal. She does what? Die in there, yeah. Sorry, I left it. I was gonna be longer, but suddenly I felt like it'd be better to talk.
0: <laughs> so thank you, Rachel. Um, so what we'll do now is Nelly will um, ask Rachel a few questions, um, and then we'll open it up to the audience for Q and A. Okay. Thanks. Um,
1: well, I had I I had some other questions. And I do know. And then when you were talking, I was just thinking about all kinds of other things. Um, and because my questions were more about sort of your writing in general, rather. I mean, I think the, the stories you just read us and those narrative, The questions about sort of writing about mental illness are now at the front mm-hmm. of my mind. But maybe I'll stick to what my original question sure. was going to be. More generally, how do you locate your material? How Mm -hmm. do you settle on your stories? But I think maybe twisting that question a little bit to Mm -hmm. say, like, what is it that, if you can, I think, can articulate this, what is it that you're really looking for in a story? Like, what 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 lights you up when you're Right. Looking for a story and you feel like, okay, this is really Well, exciting. Yeah. I
2: mean, as I was reading these stories, which I actually wrote a few years ago, um, and there's a reason probably why I'm returning to these stories, and that is because I felt like I was allowed to get so close to the way that these two women made sense of the world and I like admired them a lot and I just felt like I I, I mean in when I read whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I I like to feel like I can sort of see enter someone else's mind and see the world through their eyes. Um, And so actually I think that that is kind of what what draws me to a story. Um, And like the irrational ways that people think and sort of the ways that the law is not set up to account for that. Um, I think that that is the theme that I'm drawn to.
1: I mean, that maybe connects to another question I had, which was well, while I was sort of looking through all your pieces, I was wondering whether you had one or two that were your favorite ones, and if so... I like, mean, the wow. sad thing is, I think
2: these two, but I wrote them like five years ago, so it's, I've written like 15 stories since, and yeah. I mean, maybe the earliest, maybe there's something where the earlier you write a story, like the more, like, you know, I, I was able to spend so much time thinking about these stories, whereas now I'm like kind of a little bit more... On a schedule, um, but I love to feel that like deep connection with the person I'm writing about, and and it doesn't. I feel like I, I judge very harshly the stories where I didn't necessarily like love the person I was writing about. Like I, the reader, I don't. I've since come to realize that that's just for me the the important part, but it, may, it might not be the important part for from a reader's perspective. Um, but yeah, I do feel like my favorite stories are the ones where I just am like wandering the streets like daydreaming about the person I'm writing about.
1: Well, it occurs to me hearing those, because I, I, I remember reading the Apple one mm-hmm. at the time, but I don't remember it because it was years ago. Yeah. But I remember, like it occurs to me hearing you read it now and having just read more of your more recent pieces, mm-hmm. that, that in that one you definitely were spending a lot more time and sort of word count in terms of to that one person's story and mm-hmm. not necessarily um, writing more about the sort of larger society. I think, issues. well, I, I
2: chose those sections to read. Uh, I think mean, like, so. Yeah. I, mean, I think, like, I wonder if,
1: I just wonder about that. Like, it's partly
2: about who you're writing about. Like, some people just don't let you go there. And, like, this woman was so articulate and had written it in a journal and, like, it was a rare sort of opportunity. Um, same with the first woman I wrote about. Like she, that—that that is not the normal way of talking about schizophrenia. She was able to articulate experiences that I don't think most people can. Um, but like that was what drew me to them. And if I could, if I could only write stories about people who were somehow able to like dissect what was going through their brains, like that would be great. Okay. <laughs> oh, are we? Are people?
3: I have, oh, I'm, I'm also.
0: Like Nellie remembered this story about Linda and the apples. It was mm. unforgettable, and I knew how it would end. And I was nagged as I read it, and nagged as I listened to it, by the question of what could or should have happened. Yeah. It's fine to say that you respect this woman, but mm-hmm. I mean, was there a subtext that she should have admitted her illness? What should have been done? What Wait. could have been done? Um, The the story, as I recall, doesn't
3: really address those questions, but maybe it does. Well, the funny
2: thing is, like, after the story, I I was, like, basically near tears by by emails that I got both criticizing me from two opposite directions. Some people saying that I was saying, like, freedom is great and, like, we need to give them the right to do this, and some people saying, like, you're being so paternalistic, the story suggests that we need to medicate people. So I guess it's, like, what I actually felt was that... I I don't I don't know that I feel that something should be changed on that particular issue but more that like I didn't know why the doctors were so uh, obsessed with getting her to acknowledge she had a mental illness like I felt like there was um a common ground they had which was that she wanted a house she wanted to get out of the hospital like why did she have to why was this idea of insight like I have a mental illness therefore I need to take these pills like it didn't it seems strange that that was like the negotiating tool for everything. If they just removed that idea and like focused on what they both had in common, she would have been, she would have agreed to maybe let her family be involved or to go to transitional housing. Like the fact that she wouldn't go to transitional housing just because she didn't want to sign a piece of paper that says, I am mentally ill. It just seemed very silly. Like go to transitional housing, don't sign that. Um,
3: Yeah, the point that, Hearing in the background Mm -hmm. um, was how isolated and Mm -hmm. solitary these Mm -hmm. stories are. And you know, um, back in the '70s, with uh, Thomas Mm ads, the whole approach that these people spoke truth, and you Mm -hmm. know, their shamans and um, other cultures, of course, treat um, people with psychosis very differently. So uh what I was hearing is one of the points mm-hmm. in the story is about community. Yeah. And yeah. how um we either include or uh, exclude mm-hmm. the other. Yeah. Um, and especially mentally
2: ill. And yeah, and the part that I like somehow didn't read but was planning to read was about how basically her delusions are blossoming in isolation because there's no one to sort of reality check and so the longer she's away from them, the more detached from reality she becomes.
4: When oh, yeah. you uh, begin to uh, think about writing a story like this and I think your recent one was about solitary confinement, mm-hmm. I think, do you read um, articles or books by people who have been psychotic? Yeah. Do those kind of things you feel that's important? Yeah. Does it help
2: uh, yeah, no, it helps. I mean, I was like in a sort of craze of reading like every memoir by someone who was psycho- psychotic, who had experienced psychosis when I was writing this. Um, with solitary confinement, um, I read accounts of people in solitary confinement as a way, often, of thinking of questions to ask Albert Woodfox, who was writing about. He had been in solitary confinement for forty years, and he didn't naturally sort of talk. Like he wasn't—he wasn't a talker—and so in order to elicit information from him, I would often have to come to him by saying, "You know, I read this really interesting account where this person said that when they were in solitary confinement, their sense of color changed. Did you ever have an experience like where colors seemed different?" I'm making that up, but that's like that's how much I would sort of hand him someone else's experience and see if that prompted thoughts. So I do find just like literature very useful because it. Like makes me think about what the person I'm writing about might potentially be thinking about and often prompts questions.
4: Yeah. When you're uh, talking to these people, do you ever wonder if you're dealing with like an unreliable narrator?
2: Yeah, I think I probably am sometimes. Um, uh, but I think like the way to deal with that best is to sort of acknowledge within the writing that you can't be sure I, when I wrote about a someone who had come from Sierra Leone as a child soldier and had been a refugee in America um, he was very dull like everything he said seemed flat and like there wasn't there just was like a poverty of detail and i and I sort of acknowledged that in the story and connected that to the trauma he'd experienced so I feel like that that is generally the way that I deal with that is when someone is an unreliable narrator if I can acknowledge it within the piece or make the reader know that we're like both aware of this then it's okay to keep going with that way. Can you talk
0: about what you mean by unreliable narrator and what makes a
2: narrator reliable? Well like Linda Bishop would be an unreliable narrator in the sense that like we know that the clouds were not saying the number four and therefore her boyfriend was going to come December 4th Um, but I feel like it it's set up in such a way that I can say that without the reader feeling misled um, so just someone who I mean I don't know like I, there's no real I don't know if there's a definition and I don't think there would be but it's just someone that I can't personally trust so I want the readers to know that like they're not saying something that's authoritatively, an authoritative fact in the way that like quoting someone in a paragraph who's a scientist who's done research on this issue would be yeah. and this is, an, this is a
0: really interesting issue because it comes up in Medicine a lot. Mm-hmm. When we present narratives of patients uh, as a case report, we often start with the reliability of the narrator, reliability of mm-hmm. the patient. And I think it, it brings to light the dis- distinction between someone's lived experience, which is always true, mm-hmm. uh, versus what they are representing regarding the, the natural, uh, I guess, environment that they're, that they're reporting on. Right. Whether there are you know a, a test reports or you know whether the clouds were Mhm. Yeah,
2: form. yeah.
3: about somebody whose mind you can inhabit. -hmm. In a sense, um, the the poetry critic, Helen Vendler, says that she reads poems as if by grail, You know, she puts her hand on them and can feel it. And I was wondering if when you inhabit somebody's um, subjectivity, Mm -hmm. as you do, do you ever feel at risk? Do you ever feel...
2: Mm -hmm. I have actually been asked that. Weirdly, I think the time I felt like I was most at risk was I was writing about this Hasidic man who uh, like, couldn't, who talked all the time, who was calling me all the time at, like, 11 at night, and we were just talking, and I became, like, parent. He was paranoid that, like, the government was after him, and I was kind of, like, thinking that everything was more interesting than it actually was. Um, I don't know if I feel a risk. Like, I think one of the reasons I was interested in psychosis is because that's, like, not personally the way my mind works whereas like I would never write about someone who had trouble going to sleep or something because like <laughs> I would start thinking about like why did they have trouble and like it would can be contagious because it's like too close but um, Yeah, I don't know but like
3: so wait, certain thoughts you feel you, but Yeah, that I'm more susceptible to, because you, I mean, I don't
2: mean to be yeah Right yeah Um, But I don't know if that's actually what it... I don't know. I don't actually feel... Like, you'd think that I'd be contagious to sort of... But but I haven't necessarily found that. Um, I do think, like, I have... I I remember writing about a 14-year-old who killed his father. um, And I really did get myself into a mentality where, like, I did not think what he did was that wrong. Like because it was he just was stupid and i like really felt that he was just being stupid and like he did not know what he was doing so like i did not feel he was that morally culpable even though like 99% of people would and like i had to adjust that i, I just want
3: to say i worked for over a decade representing people facing the death penalty mm-hmm. and i know
2: exactly what you mean right. it's like i feel like you just said like well, i never want to right right, right. You know, you spend, like, Mm-hmm. And you therefore don't
3: think of them and that becomes your job right. to humanize them. So you don't you know that what they did was not right. Right. But you don't think that they're the other mm-hmm. the ununderstandable mm-hmm. other that, Right. I don't know if that's what you're saying.
2: Yeah. So interesting yeah. to hear you say
4: that. Yeah, definitely. Thank yeah, you I I, I I was really struck by your writing and you know for nonfiction is chilling and really wonderful. So, so my question sort of talks about bridging fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering, it depends on what you're writing on, but I'm wondering how you handle your outline. And I'm talking process in mm-hmm. way, but the, the, the insertions that you read tonight, for example, were not things that happened, you know, when you were talking to someone, this is something that happened to you, when you were sitting at a desk and, you know, some things, some phrases came in, some images came in. So I'd like to know how you you manage and massage those outlines, where you're going, where you've been, and what you think you need to insert?
2: Wait, so you're talking about how do I outline an article before I write it? Yeah, of course,
4: when you, you sit down, uh-huh. you, you sort of have a rough sketch of where you're going, and it evolves over time, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but at some point, you have to say, you know what, this is not the outline, but this really fills in the space that's really important and provides color. So I'm just wondering how you handle your your outline because you must start with one how rigid you, you hold to it. Right. Um,
2: I often can write an outline that is pretty chronological. So I'll like take all the notes I've taken over the course of all my research and all the interviews and I'll read through it all again before I start writing it and I'll sort of cat put each idea or passage into what section it will be based on usually chronology um and then i can take the new sections each section and sort of write them from what the material that i've called uh i don't i i don't know if i'm not like structurally i feel like structure is not usually that it's usually like it feels like i know what it I know it's going to happen like sometimes I change the beginning a little bit but usually maybe because of the way that The New Yorker works it's like so it's, it really is about telling a story that starts in time and ends later in time um, and then it's also about fitting in where are you going to bring in sort of a larger context um, and I often think about like, don't bring in that context until like precisely that moment where the reader's sort of asking questions about what that context is. Like, don't do it before, or then it will feel like an intrusion or like a commercial break or like education time, but like make it so that it's something the reader wants to know. But that's sort of how I think about it. I've heard that, too. <laughs> I don't
4: understand that. I'm not so smart. I read it, but I don't know if it makes me feel smart.
2: Well, I don't know. I'm, I would be interested to know that. I mean, I've actually had someone say that about my writing, that it makes you feel smart. But she was in an MFA class, so I don't know. But um, I mean, I guess because you're really digesting, um, you're distilling the research you did in a way that's like extremely non-expert, but not so in a, not an expert as to be like pop foolish, but I, I don't really know. I don't think that's actually probably a good thing either, but. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like i are hearing more and more about children's psychosis. I'm
4: curious, one, if you've been dealing with uh, any writings around children and psychosis, mm-hmm. thinking about autoimmune encephalitis,
2: um, pandas, different things. What are the two and words I don't know? About. What were the two last things you said?
4: Oh, autoimmune encephalitis, PANS and PANS, where children with psychosis.
2: Huh.
4: I, I'm just wondering if you've been hearing more about that, if you've investigated it. I, I would imagine as a writer, one thing leads to so that was to one. And secondly, um, any big picture ideas or insights that come from having done this when you look at the different silos in medicine, and then as a journalist or writer, you're kind of not above it, but kind of sometimes see big picture when you're in the middle of a silo, you're not necessarily seeing so Mm-hmm.
2: lessons, learned, or insights from that that can in help the community do? You know. um, as for child psychosis, I have, I said, I always am interested when I read, like, reports about that, but I, it's not something I've looked into very deeply. I was interested in, I don't know if you followed that Slenderman case where the two children, like, stabbed their friend because they thought that they were embodying, I don't even know what Slenderman is really, but it's like a meme, or something. <laughs> but it's like a, a fantasy. And one of the girls was just very taken by this fantasy and one of the girls had schizophrenia. And I found that interesting that like they both were developing this kind of delusion together, one in a play-acting way and one like in a pathological way. Um, but I think the, the feeling that I have is what I found interesting, this was a few years ago and maybe things have changed a little bit, but was how frustrated patients were when they felt like their doctors were not interested in their psychotic experience cuz they were like well that's a symptom and the goal is to get rid of that symptom and they were like but this is like my day to day life and reality and like this is how I'm living and like my simp- my my the thoughts and beliefs I'm having having are emerging from my life and it, my life is entering those thoughts and so like they felt it was very important that like this entire category of their own life and experience was being dismissed um, so that was something that seemed strange to me. And the other the strange thing was just like what an emphasis there is on language, the language of having a diagnosis. Like rather than agreeing on all the things that the person wants to change about their life, there's somehow this great emphasis on getting the person to say, I do have a mental illness and therefore I will take medication. Oh everything, I I like to me the most painstaking like the thing that I like least about what I do is um, coming up with stories like I just find it really hard and um, it is it is strange because like I know that all like doctors lawyers all these people are interacting in the real world with people and I feel like often my method of finding stories involves my computer which is like not the right way um, but. Yeah, uh, there's like two m- I mean and it, uh, one one I had a um I recently spoke to a class of another writer at the New Yorker and like she was talking to her students and casually mentioned that whenever she gets off the phone with someone she's inter- interviewing for an article and she often writes about criminal justice and the law she'll just say, "By the way, what's the most interesting case you ever worked on?" Um I thought that was a really good. I mean, cuz like everyone in their career has probably one case or one patient that sort of sticks with them and like made them think about things in a different way. Um, But yeah, if anyone has any ideas for stories, (laughs) I'm always looking. So I was really struck hearing your first
3: story about Anna. I was thinking about how in the New Yorker, I had just read that it's more than
2: probable that we all live in a simulation. (laughs) And I don't know if you came across this article. What was the article? but, we all live in a This was in The New Yorker? Yeah. Elon Musk put it out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have any <laughs> Can I just leave it at that or you're coming cuz I don't know if I have any response. I think that's an interesting question. I like thinking about that. And I like thinking about how it's a spectrum and how there is no like clear moment where you're sane or insane. I think what I have come to think, what I sometimes tell friends when they're depressed or whatever is like you're doing okay if you're going to work, like getting dressed, eating. You know, like, let's not talk about what your realities. Let's just talk about, like, what are you doing? And, like, you're clean. You're going to work. You still have friends. Like, you're doing OK. okay. <laughs> uh,
4: thanks so much for speaking to us. Really appreciate it. Um, you, you talked about a little bit earlier about how a lot of the topics that you write on are about people who are difficult to relate to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you write about them because they're difficult to relate to. Uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, it's it's quite striking that the writing that you have is infused with a sense of empathy. It does a great job of conveying that empathy. And I was wondering about that process. Is it natural? Is it something that you have to be conscious about? How, how do you develop a sense of empathy for people who are in situations and perspectives far different from your own?
2: Um, I don't know how me personally, because like I, just, I usually write about people that I feel that empathy toward, and that's what, part of what draws me to that story. Um, and I think generally I'm, like, on the empathetic spectrum, but I think, I think um, I mean, I'm the more empathetic end of the spectrum. But one thing I think a lot about in writing is, like, how do you create empathy for a reader? And, and I do think it comes so much with those details. Like, if you write about someone in vague terms and you don't get those that flavor for what their life is and, like, what it looks like and feels like, there isn't that, I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know why this works the way it does, but it just does, like, even I was on the phone today with someone I'm writing about, he's a former NYPD cop who feels like he was discriminated against, and um, I was asking him about an encounter he had with someone that had led to, like, him feeling retaliated against, and I kept saying, like, where did you run into the guy, and he was like, oh, I don't know, I just ran into the guy, and finally he said, I ran into the guy in front of a butcher. And I was just like, for some reason, I found that so gratifying that he had finally just like given me a place where this conversation took place. Because I felt like once a reader read, read that, they would believe it more, or they would understand like just the texture of his life more, and that makes a difference. So I don't really know what it is, but I do know that like detail, concrete details makes people feel attached.
4: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Fuller Tori. Familiar with him, and also the database that you refer to. First of all, why did you put the phrase "preventable tragedies" in scare quotes? And secondly, what did you get feedback from
2: him about your article? I put it in
4: quotes
2: because I didn't want you guys to think that I was calling them preventable tragedies when the title was "preventable tragedies." Um, did I get feedback? I think he actually really liked the story. I think he like publicized it on his website. Um, did I answer your question? I by your story And the of her she was Oh yeah, that's better. Yeah. There's a a movement in New York, I know, and other cities too, where, because for some, sometimes housing for people who are homeless or like transitioning out of jail or homelessness um, is contingent on the person having a mental illness. And I think there is like a strong movement toward not making people self-identify as mentally ill in order to get housing. And I think what they found is that when people don't have to self-identify as mentally ill, even if they are mentally ill, they're far more likely to take that housing. Like, there was a population of people who didn't want to, they felt, like, stigmatized by saying, oh, I'm at the mentally ill housing. Um, So I know that that is one important place where that happens. Sorry, I feel like I'm having... Yeah... I find I find there's a lot of like new anthropology that's done about, like and the anthropology of psychiatry. Um, I read, uh, I think I, no maybe I didn't, but Tanya Lerm TM Lerman at Stanford, has done some really interesting studies about women who are like what she calls the institutional circuit, who are moving between jails and hospitals. Um, and I do think that, that from that perspective, there's just this, to try to understand why people keep returning, like why leaving the hospital doesn't just happen once, it happens over and over in a cycle. Um, But so maybe getting out of that narrow perspective of like the psychiatrist with the diagnosis, with the medication, but like thinking about the other social problems contributing. But again, that doesn't happen in the hospital, I don't think. I enjoyed hearing
5: your reading.
2: They're on the New Yorker's website. But
5: But anyway, I just wondered, you talked a lot about empathy, and I'm wondering whether um, having really deeply written these stories made you have a different idea about mental illness, and whether, in fact, you might have a mission that you hope that bringing these stories to life might change how other people perceive. Mm
2: Well, I think what I found so striking was this like intense desire, especially the first story that I wrote, what I heard from the people who, because I I'd interviewed a lot of people, and what I heard from them was like what a relief it was to realize that they weren't the only ones having these thoughts that they felt were really crazy. And so um, I was struck by how much, like how shameful it is to have those experiences. And like because you feel ashamed, you don't share them. Because you don't share them, they become more extreme. Because there's no one to to sort of talk about with them. Um, so that did feel like a mission of sorts, like to communicate these experiences so people didn't feel like they were the only ones having them because they're so hard to like translate into language. Uh, I,
5: uh, I I'm wondering if most threatening thing in our society today. There's an article in the New York, New, York magazine, uh, New York Times magazine by a psychiatrist whose wife was a psychiatrist and a social worker. And he said that he quickly goes through his 15 minute visit. And then when the door knocks and when the patient brings up a real problem, he says, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. So in a paradoxical way, people pick psychiatry because there's some empathy, more empathy than, say, the surgeon. Mm-hmm. And it's really threatening in today's world so that does it not depersonalize, you know, the healer to such an extent that uh, we, we actually add downs so, You know, I don't have time. That's a primary part of schizophrenia. It's not secondary. just wondering if you picked up any any of that in your...
2: your the, the most endangered thing is the talk therapy.
5: Yeah, right, just the, the relationship. Right. The, the,
2: yeah, the, I mean, Ellen Sachs is book that I mentioned at the beginning, the center cannot hold is really interesting because she has schizophrenia and she is on medication but like the thing that she consistently attributes to her own ability to be a very extremely highly functional person is talk therapy and she also acknowledges that the only reason she can do it is because she's wealthy. Um,
0: yeah. You know, one thing you talked about this um, idea of the institutional circuit, mm-hmm. and going from the, the, um, the shelter to the jail, emergency room inpatient psychiatric ward, halfway house, um, these institutions in your, do you get a sense of how well equipped these institutions are to help people with mental illness and to help people with psychosis? So it seems like it's. this is a very common experience for us in medical institutions Mm to know that our patients kind of go on the circuit. and I'm wondering the other uh, links in that chain, whether they're equipped to work
5: with these patients, these
0: people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that that's like an answer I can authoritatively answer, uh, just because it varies so much from institution to institution, and it seems like the problem is more like what happens in between. These institutions that are—I mean, the, hot, the emergency room is doing their job to get this person not to kill themselves. But then there's like all these intermediate steps. But yeah, I don't know that I'm going to have a good answer on that one. Any
5: questions? I mean, I guess I just want to say thanks for Thank you. being yeah. here and.
0: Right? A yeah. little calmer one? Yeah.